to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. I really am not scientifically oriented in my mental processes. I wish I I was more so. But the little bits and pieces that I pick up here and there, when you start to see how this whole system is so intricately connected, it's, it's really astounding. You see, obviously, that there is a great intellect behind this. You see that there is a great purpose behind it. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian resumes his teaching on Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, in a message titled, The Days of Creation. Now, here's Pastor Brian. Augustine argued that God could have created it in six seconds if he wanted to. And he's right, he could have. Why did he take six days? I think from Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, we realize that God took six days in order to set a pattern for man, that he would labor six days and he would rest on the seventh day as God did. That seems to be the only reason for the six days. But again, there's, there's a process that's underway here now. So at this point, the picture of the earth, and again, to quote Henry Morris, is one of all the basic material elements sustained in a pervasive watery matrix throughout the darkness of space. Elements of matter and molecules of water were present, but not yet energized. The force of gravity was not yet functioning to draw such particles together into a coherent mass with a definite form. Neither were the electromagnetic forces yet in operation, and everything was in darkness. The physical universe had come into existence, but everything was still and dark. No form, no motion, no light. So here we are on that first day, and then what do we read? And God said, let there be light. Let there be light. So God speaks now, and he brings light into the situation. And each time as we go through the creative process now, as God is assembling, it's going to use that same terminology. And God said, and God said, and God said. And of course, that reminds us of something that we have read in the New Testament. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and all things were made through him, and not one single thing was made that was not made by him. So each time we read, and God said, we're reading about the role of the word, who we know as Jesus, in the creation process. So God speaks, and he brings light into existence. And once again, I quote Henry Morris, this is where the electromagnetic forces came into operation, producing light waves. These light rays were impinging on the earth as it rotated on its axis during the first three days of essentially the same intensities and directions as those which would later emanate from the heavenly bodies to be emplaced on the fourth day. 
So already God has set the earth on its axis and it's already rotating because we have this evening and morning first day thing. But at this point, the sun is not created. Now, for some time, people had a difficulty with that. How could you have light, and especially with this evening morning thing, without the creation of the sun? And so some speculated that, well, when we come to the fourth day, it, perhaps it's talking about God not creating the sun or forming it literally, but maybe just putting it in its proper position. And although that might sort of take away some of the difficulty a little bit for us, that's not what the text says. So it's better to go with what the text says and to realize this, that there are certain things that we just probably can't understand. And that would stand to reason if we have a God who can create a universe that is 156 billion light years in diameter, he probably will do a few things that we just can't quite get our heads around. And we ought to be okay with that, really. And, and, you know, this is the problem. So often with our little finite brains, we're, we're trying to figure these things out and we don't have all of the information. We don't even have the capacity. You know, I, I have said this often, and I want to say it again. I, I think it is the height of folly and arrogance for a human being who is going to live a maximum 100 years to pontificate about millions or billions of years. I mean, think about that for a moment. You know, when you read some of these guys like, you know, if it would have been maybe like Isaac Asimov before or Carl Sagan or some of these different guys, Stephen Jay Gould, and, you know, they are always pontificating about the millions and the billions of years. And I think, you know, how utterly foolish and how arrogant that we would think that we would know anything about anything like that, a, a creature that lives a maximum 100 years. You see, the safest thing to do is to take the Bible at face value, let it speak for itself, and if we can grasp it, if we can confirm it scientifically, if we can, you know, through experimentation, come to see it, yeah, you know, it all fits together, great. If we can't, it's okay. It's okay. Because there are just lots of things that we are never going to be able to figure out. And we need to have enough confidence in God and in his word that when it comes to those kinds of things, I'm content to just leave it in the Lord's hands. And I know him well enough. I know his love well enough. I know that, you know, I can trust that it'll all get sorted out in the long run. But it's when a person insists on, you know, I've got to have all of the answers or I've got to put it all in a system. That's when we get ourselves into trouble. And so God brings light into existence on the first day. Of course, God is himself light. We read in the book of Revelation, which is the consummation of all things, Genesis, the beginning of all things, Revelation, the consummation of all things, we read about the new Jerusalem, that there will be no need for the sun and the moon, for the Lord God is the light thereof, So the Lord will be the light of the new Jerusalem. But it says this. It says, and the nations who are saved will walk in the light of that holy city. 
So the Lord himself will be the light. There will be no sun and moon shining in the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem will be projecting light onto the nations of the world. All of this to say, if you have some sort of a problem with God creating light apart from the sun, get over it. It's not, it's not any kind of a big deal. Remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus? What did he see? He saw a light shining brighter than the noonday sun. And can you imagine what the noonday sun is like in the deserts of Damascus? It's brilliant. It's bright. It's intense. Paul sees the light that's outshining the sun. But you see, these are the things that sometimes people have, have gotten tripped up over, and we don't need to get tripped up over it. It's just as God said. He spoke. He said, let there be light. And so God divided the light from the darkness. He called the light day, the darkness night, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. So the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, on the first day, remember, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the deep or the face of the waters. And so the earth itself in its unformed state, God is, is beginning to form it, but it's submerged in water. And so what God does on the second day is he divides the waters. He divides the waters below, which would remain in a liquid form. And then there are waters that are above the firmament. So the word firmament literally means expanse. And of course, heaven, the atmosphere, is, is what's being described here. So we have a situation where we still have the earth itself inundated in water, but now we have this expanse. We have the heavens, and now in a vapor form, the waters have now been separated, and they're now above the heavens at this point, as well as below it. This would have created, according to many, a water vapor canopy over the earth that would have produced a global greenhouse effect. And if you think through what that would have resulted in, it helps us to understand some of the other things that were told a little bit later in Genesis that are a little bit baffling to us. One of the things that helps us to understand is the longevity of life back during that time before the flood. So if you think of it in terms of this water canopy, again, Morris says, this would maintain an essentially uniformly pleasant warm temperature all over the world. The combination of warm temperature and adequate moisture everywhere would be conducive later to the extensive stands of lush vegetation all over the world with no barren deserts or ice caps. And many of you know that in places like Antarctica and Siberia and places they found beneath the surface way down, they found evidence of a former tropical vegetation in those areas. 
A vapor canopy would also be highly effective in filtering out ultraviolet radiation, cosmic rays, and other destructive energies from outer space. Thus, the canopy would contribute effectively to human and animal health and longevity. Now, as we go further into Genesis, of course, we're going to come to the story of the flood, ultimately. And one of the things that occurs during the flood is that the windows of heaven are opened, and many people believe that that water vapor canopy it was during the time of the flood that all of that was released from heaven onto the earth, and that is what uh, resulted in the flood as, as well as the fountains of the great deep being broken up. So that water vapor canopy no longer exists today. But that is what is being described here as we look at the second day of creation. Then in verse 9, God said, "'Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place.'" And let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. So God separates the waters from under the heavens, and he brings forth the dry land, and he brings forth now the vegetation. You know, I really am not scientifically oriented in my mental processes. I wish I, I was more so. I wish I could retain all the stuff I've heard over the years or read over the years. But the, the little bits and pieces that I pick up here and there, again, when you start to see how this whole system is so intricately connected, it, it's, it's really astounding you see, obviously, that there is a great intellect behind this. You see that there is a great purpose behind this. But think about vegetation for a moment. We read here about the grass. And, and this would be a reference to all of the ground coverings, not just your Bermuda grass or you know, whatever you might have in your front yard. And then we've got the herbs, which would be the shrubs and the bushes. And then, of course, we've got the trees, but think about how vitally important those things are to us, but how I think, in, especially in our generation, we take so many of these things for granted. I mean, honestly, when you go into the grocery store, into the vegetable section, are you realizing that this is part of what God created on the third day of creation? Are you realizing that these are the plants that are being spoken of here? These, you know, for us, they've, they've become food. And sometimes I don't even know if we really consciously think of it in those terms any longer because we don't go through the process of planting. We don't go through the process of cultivating. We don't go through the process of harvesting and, you know, all of the things that the farmers do. We don't know anything about it. We just show up at the grocery store and pick up our cilantro or our <laughs> zucchini or you know, whatever we want. But are we thinking that God made this stuff? Because that's what we're being told here. 
That's exactly what we're being told here. And so God made the plants. There are some 350,000 different kinds of plants, and plant life is essential to human life, number one, as food, but in another way also, and even in some ways, a more important way, in a more important way, plants not only supply us with food, but plants supply us with oxygen. We, as you know, we inhale oxygen and we exhale carbon dioxide. Plants take in carbon dioxide and give off oxygen. Plants replenish our oxygen supply. Now, is there anybody that really for a minute would believe that this happened accidentally? You know, here's the thing. And I, I would imagine that many of you would agree with me. I was saying this to Cheryl last night after I was reading a bunch of these different kinds of things. I, I just said, you know, a person who understands all of this stuff and still denies the existence of a creator is a most pitiful person. Truly. Because when you look at the complexity, when you look at how all of these systems are interrelated, when you, you know, again, we... We go out into the forest. We go on vacation, maybe to a, a, a lush area. Maybe you go to the Hawaiian Islands or somewhere. You see all of this greenery and all that. And it's beautiful for sight. And we've already talked about the food element. But do we realize that without this stuff, we wouldn't even be breathing? That all of this system is, is working together. It again testifies to the reality of a great mind. Behind it, and we know who that great mind is it's the Lord. Again, I quote Henry Morris. And remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about the age of the universe and the difficulty that some people have with believing that we could possibly live in a, in a young universe and, and on a young earth. But this, this is relevant to that topic. He says, It is significant that these plants were made. Not as seeds. So it doesn't say that on the third day God planted a bunch of seeds all over the earth. But what does it say? It, it, the, the green grass, the herbs, the trees. So they were not planted as seeds, but as full-grown plants whose seed was in themselves. They thus had an appearance of age. The concept of creation of apparent age does not, of course, suggest a divine deception, as some have indicated, but it is a necessary accompaniment of genuine creation. The process operating, processes operating in creation week, here's the key, were not the processes of the present era, but were processes of creating and making and are thus not commensurate with present processes at all. Adam was created a full-grown man. The trees were created full-grown trees. And the whole universe was made as a functioning entity, complete and fully developed right from the beginning. The apparent age that might be calculated in terms of present processes would undoubtedly be vastly different from the true age as revealed by the Creator. See, this is what many people either don't understand or fail to accept is that the processes that we have presently occurring are not the processes that were occurring when God created everything. That was a unique moment 
a six-day period in history, and everything changed after that moment. But God created, as we see here, he created all of these things in a full-grown state. In verse 14, then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let there be signs and seasons and for days and years. Let them be for signs and seasons, days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so, then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And so now we come to the fourth day. And God makes. And the word make here is a different. Remember the, the Hebrew word that we looked at a while back, the Hebrew word bara, God created. He created out of nothing. We'll come to that word again in a moment. But here is a different Hebrew word, asa, which means that God is forming out of existing material. So he forms now the sun and the moon and the stars. And that light that was originally there for the first three days, he now diverts that or whatever he does at this point. But now the, the sun becomes the source. And of course, the moon reflects the light of the sun. And then you have the light of the stars. But notice what it says. It says that, that these are for signs, seasons, days, and years. For signs, seasons, days, and years. For signs. Some believe the various star formations that we know today as as the zodiac, some believe that those star formations originally told the story of redemption. And among the ancient Hebrews, there was writing about the Maseroth. And the Maseroth was, in the thinking of many, kind of the, the story of redemption in the stars. That's believed by some. But God definitely says that these things are for signs. When you read through the Old Testament, you find that the new moons were the sign of the time of Israel's appointed feast. And so that would be an application of the sign. You think also of what is called celestial navigation. You know, for centuries, sailors navigated the seas by reading the stars. That's how they understood where they were. That's how they got from place to place. So that could also fall under the category of signs, but then for seasons. You know, it's interesting, and this is something I think to to always remember. We have knowledge and information today that 200, 300, maximum 500 years back and before, nobody really knew these things. We know them today. We more or less take all of this stuff for granted. Join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. One of my favorite topics is history, and church history is 
a part of that. I've read many church history books, and I recently read a fantastic book by an author named John Dixon, and the book is called Bullies and Saints. And the subtitle is An Honest Look at the Good and Evil in Christian History. And John is an Australian. He is an apologist. He is also a historian, and he does an excellent job at looking at both the good and the bad things in church history. So if you're into history, I think knowing church history is important for Christians. I highly recommend Bullies and Saints by John Dixon. Again, this month's resource is a book titled Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History by John Dixon. You can order the book Bullies and Saints by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book The Bullies and Saints by John Dixon to help you understand both the good and bad historical contributions of Christianity. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.